Welcome to the Bonner Private Research Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Bowman. Each week, we bring you exclusive conversations with members of Bill Bonner's private research team, as well as some special guests we'll meet along the way. We're trying to connect the dots, from high finance to lowly politics, private investments to public follies, from Wall Street to Main Street, at home and on the road. We're into sound money, personal freedom, classical books, and great wines. Not always in that order. So join me and the rest of the Bonner Private Research team as we pack our bags and follow the money. My guest for today's show spent over a decade as a high-flying corporate strategist for one of the world's biggest investment banks, helping guide its expansion into the explosive marketplace over in Asia from his office in Hong Kong. He worked long banker's hours and often found himself away from his young family on business trips to Beijing, Zurich, and back to London. That is, until in a moment of clarity, he decided to make the very best trade of his life turning his back on the financial industry as he had known it, and relocating his family to Buenos Aires in Argentina. The timing could hardly have been better. Later that same year, the world financial markets collapsed in the now infamous 2008 credit crisis. But by then, my guest was already embarked on the road to private investment, unhurried lunches, and best of all, enjoying long walks with his kids to school and weekends with them in the parks and on the beaches. I met Rob Marstrand a couple of years later, when he was working alongside Bill Bonner as part of the Family Office Project. We have enjoyed many an unhurried lunch together since, over which we generally discuss the state of the world, the fate of mankind, and other such trivial matters. I recently caught up with Rob to get his take on the ongoing pandemic there, Brexit as the crisis that wasn't, and the challenge of finding investment opportunities in a world awash in cheap credit. Please enjoy my conversation with Rob up next. All right, we've got Rob Marstrand on the line. Rob, thanks for joining us from Argentina, mate. How are things? Hi, Joel. Good to talk to you. <laughs> I'm fine. Uh, the sun is shining. It's winter, but, uh, you know, we're emerging out the other side. The other side of this uh, never-ending COVID uh, lockdown and disaster. What's the situation on the ground there? Um, well, I would say it's pretty bad in the sense of, you know, the, the number of people that have actually ended up being affected by this mm. thing and, and the kind of death rates compared to, you know, benchmarking to the US or Europe, Argentina's been quite a bad place. And actually, I don't know if a lot of people know this because it's hardly been reported by the media anywhere in the kind of Western world. But, but Latin America is, I think, the worst hit uh, continent in the world. Now, if you look at, um, you know, in Peru, the uh, number of deaths per million population are well above 5,000, which is, you know, more, like, more than double sort of US, UK and, you know, big Western Europe countries. So, the, you know, the media talks about India because they like showing funeral pyres, which look very exciting. But the reality is Latin America is the, is the badly hit region and Argentina is one of those countries. Right. And that seems to fly in the face of uh, the kind of advice that we're getting from, you know, medical experts who tend to be uh, bureaucrats and administrators more than actually, you know, frontline um, epidemiologists and and whatnot. That these lockdowns uh, that are, you know, seem to be the one and only cure, uh, certainly in the West, that that they are the cure all. Uh, when, as you and I both know, having spent a good deal of last year locked in our apartments down in Buenos Aires, uh, respective apartments, that uh, Argentina actually had one of the longest and hardest lockdowns. Um, certainly, on, certainly on the continent. I think maybe on, around the world. Yeah. Look, I know this is a this is a complex thing, and I'm not a I'm not a epidemiologist, you know, what do you call it, epidemiologist or whatever the word is. I'm not an expert on these on these things. But um, my personal observation is, you know, a place like Argentina, where a lot of people rely on very badly funded state healthcare, the early lockdown sort of made sense because just no one really knew what the situation was, how bad it might get. You didn't want the thing getting just completely. Um, overrun. But then at some point, once the treatments became clearer and it became clearer who was at risk, you know, people with certain uh, certain conditions and or certain ages, then they should have you know, 
every country should loosen up a bit. I think it's nuts what's going on in, down in your old um, stomping ground of Australia and New Zealand. Oh, they're basically under they're practically under military you know, military rule. Um, uh, so and and quite frankly, I'm I'm Argentina has had that hard lockdown as you mentioned, but over time it's relaxed. And to be honest, I'd far rather be here than in in say Australia, New Zealand, or bits of Europe um, with at least some freedom some agency to make decisions on how I want to to address this this issue. Yeah, uh, I, it would be a long and uh, emotional tirade that I would enter into if I were to get on the subject of what's going on in Australia. But uh, yeah, speaking to family and friends there, it's um, you know it's, it's it seems to be that there's this fixation with zero COVID, for example, in the case of Australia. There's there's it's it's almost it's almost reached the stage of kind of mass psychosis where I read just the other day that in neighboring New Zealand, they'd locked the entire country down again for a single case. I mean, that's, that's hubris of, of just another level thinking that you can control a virus to the, to that extent. And, you know, we're talking about a tiny Island in the middle of the Pacific and they still can't keep out single cases, but the other side of the equation, the economic uh, and social cost of keeping people cooped up in their houses and the cost of having surrendered the kinds of civil liberties that Australians seem to just queue up to hand over to their, their overlords is mightily disturbing. I'm, I'm a little, um, you know, I'm heartened by what I think you and I would probably consider a, a healthy skepticism among the Argentine population for, uh, you know, the military coming knocking on one's door, for example. Well, I think we know that, that that would never happen here. They would never bring the military in to check up on people, you know, that they're doing their quarantines because it's such a sensitive topic yeah. here. I mean, who knew? Who knew? I'm, I, you know, we've known each other for, what, 11 years, I think, since about 2010. And who knew? I, well, you may have heard me say on many occasions that day to day, I've felt for a long time that, that kind of in those small, you know, daily interactions and daily activities, I felt more personal freedom in Argentina than living in the UK, for example, where there are a lot of petty rules over everything that, that are actually enforced. Yep. Whereas here, there might be a petty rule, but no one knows what it is and no one enforces <laughs> it. Um, but who knew? Who knew that a place like Argentina would be so much freer than countries that, like Australia, like New Zealand, like the UK, who claim to have a lot of freedom, but in reality, uh, don't seem to. When it comes down to it, yeah, and it's, uh, I get this uh, all the time, and I'm sure you do as well. Uh, it seems a little paradoxical that um, people, you know, of our particular political or should I say apolitical persuasion, would end up uh, spending, you know, investing a good time of our lives in a country like Argentina, just knowing that it's economically, I mean, such a notorious basket case you know, undergoing these kind of decennial crises and, and you know, currency devaluations and, and um, you know, literally heli-vacking, uh, you know, presidents off the roof of the Casa Rosada. It seems like it would be, it would be too chaotic and too, um, too insane of a place to live. But as you said, there's a, there's a big divide between the kind of rules that are on the books and the rules, you know, the, the de facto rules and the de jour rules that people actually live by and, and, and get along uh, with. I think, I think it was you who mentioned to me a few, um, a few months ago that if you, you had gone through some of the Argentine uh, tax laws and added up all of the different types of taxes that you would have to pay as a business, and it came to something greater than 100%, I think, if I remember correctly, 120% or something. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, no, that's that's right. There was a study a few years ago done by one of the big account global accounting firms. I forget which one, and they'd looked at something like forty countries, and uh, out of all of them, Argentina had if 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 a medium sized business complied with every tax law in the country, they they were automatically losing money. Um, that's just <laughs> a crazy system, obviously. I mean, it's just just absolutely mad. Which is why Argentina scores so badly in ease of doing business surveys around the world. It's always near the bottom. Um, so yeah, I mean, should be should be clear on that. The, the the financial system and the business environment here, and employment law, all that stuff is absolute basket case stuff. But the kind of day to day, um, you know, wandering about in the street, enjoying your coffee or your steak or your you know whatever, um, and importantly, something we didn't mention before, freedom of speech 
is still alive and well, I believe, in this part of the world. Very important. Whereas it's under severe threat, severe threat in, I believe, the US and also the UK mm-hmm. and in some other places too. Um, you know, countries which claim, again, to have freedom and democracy. But actually, in reality, if, if people speak out on a huge range of issues, and it seems to be expanding day by day, you can say rather innocuous things, rather uncontroversial things. And I don't want to go into those things now. But, you know, you can say rather what I consider uncontroversial things. And suddenly there's an outrage and people lose their jobs and, you know, all the rest of it. And everyone's living in fear of, you know, not... Uh, you know, not towing the line. It's like a sort of rather, I know this is a cliche to talk about Orwell, but it really is like 1984 where, where there's double speak, the cognitive dissonance, if you like, where people think one thing, but say the other, blah, blah, blah. blah. It's, it, or something can mean two things or, or you have to be careful what you say. The whole thing is just absolutely crazy. And I suppose the ray of hope is that I'm observing there is some pushback happening now. So we may have, we may have fingers crossed, we may have passed peak woke or peak cancel culture, <laughs> I'm hoping. Yeah. Um, but we'll see. We'll see because, you know, you've studied lots of history. I've studied a bit. And, um, you know, totalitarian thinking, it seems to be alive and well. And these things start slowly and then they, they sort of um, snowball. And I think cancel culture is basically totalitarian, totalitarian thinking on a small scale that would like to reach a bigger scale. Yeah, certainly. I, uh, I, wrote, uh, I woke up this morning in a 13th century Venetian cave. Now, I know that, uh, if you can believe it, that sounds a bit odd, but there are some spectacular Airbnbs for rent here on the island of Crete, which I know you've visited. And I lay in bed before getting up, looking at the ceiling, thinking of the lessons, thinking of the people who had looked at these ruins over the centuries past and who had no idea what was to come in the future, who had no idea that their civilization would one day completely collapse and that they would be taken over by the Ottomans. They'd be taken over, you know, by, by 20 other marauding gangs that, that their, their currencies would come in and out of, um, in and out of existence, that they would be under, you know, different political rules and that each of those respective uh, empires would in turn collapse under the weight of their own hubris and, uh, and you know, military misadventures or, you know, whatever it happened to be at the time. But it does seem to be that that man is condemned to repeat or rather at least not learn from the lessons uh, of the past. And it does seem that we're going down one of those, what ought to be a very familiar track. I mean, we know what happens when fundamental rights like the right of speech or the right to free assembly or the right to uh, petition for redress of, of grievances or what happens... When those rights are taken away and trampled, we get into very murky waters. And, you know, we only have to look back, you know, not even deep into the last century to see the end game of those kinds of uh, curtailments of, of basic freedoms. And yet here we are again. It seems, as you say, it seems that we're, you know, we're trying to cancel history on one side. We're pulling down statues. We're policing speech. We're closing down free and open debate, even though we know uh, that it, it has catastrophic end games, uh, and yet, yet we do it anyway. So, um. well, and and I think you you touched on it there. Also, you know, part of this is the destruction of the monetary and financial system, and you know most most uh, most losing sides in any big war or most collapsing empires, um, a, a factor, whether it's the factor but a factor, has been a collapse of of the money, basically. Mm-hmm. Some sort of devaluation, some sort of some sort of bankruptcy problem. Basically, you know, they're overextended, can't afford to pay for all the all the things they've uh, they require to keep the whole system going. And you know, since I'm in Argentina, why not mention that? I mean, a hundred years ago, this was one of the richest countries in the world on a per capita basis, and it has destroyed itself over a century through nothing more than political and through that monetary and economic misadventure. It's all completely self-inflicted well it's never all but let's say it's 90 percent self-inflicted um and that continues to this day so i don't know if your listeners know but um you know maybe for the last five years or so the average inflation rate so prices price rises measured in pesos which are the local currency is something around 50 percent a year that's five zero not one five five zero percent and that's the official that's fast that's the official uh, rate yeah Well, well well quite well, quite, um, and that's despite despite uh, price controls and all the rest of it. 
But, you know, you, that's fast enough that you notice prices going up sort of on a monthly mm -hmm. basis. You notice increments. Every time you jump in a taxi or whatever, it's, it's gone up a little bit. Um, and, you know, it makes me laugh a little bit, actually, that, that, say, back in the UK, which I'm sure everyone can guess I'm from, people sort of get terribly upset when the inflation rate goes from 2% to 2.2% or 2.4% or whatever it is. Um, Whereas here we're we're interested in whether it's going to be forty percent, fifty percent, or sixty percent. Right. <laughs> um, which is, which is, and what comes with that is is capital controls. We've got multiple exchange rates because there are different markets. There are legal ones. There are controlled ones. There are legal ones that are uncontrolled. There are illegal ones that are sort of on back streets and all at very very different exchange rates. Uh, you know, I think the I think the official exchange rate is uh, one dollar buys about a hundred pesos at the moment. It's around that mark. And the sort of backstreet rate is a little over 180. So you get 80% more pesos for your dollar if you take a $100 bill to a man in a, you know, in a shop than if you go to the bank. So this, this, is the, this is the breakdown, total breakdown of the financial system. Now, Argentina has been practicing this for 100 years. But I've said for many years that I think Europe definitely is going down this track of breakdown. It's just bankrupting itself. Um, and the, the US, US has some major advantages. But the politics seem to have got very fractious over the last few years. And so the question is whether, whether it's going to throw away its advantages like Argentina has done over the last 100 years. Big place, lots of resources. Mm -hmm. No reason it can't be rich. It's got all the right, it's got all the right cultural stuff. Um, and it's just thrown it yeah. away. So that's, that, that's that old joke that uh, every Argentine taxi driver will, will tell you when they realize that you're from abroad. And, the, and that's that there are four types of countries in the world. First world countries, third world countries. Japan, where no one can figure out how they did so much with so little, and then Argentina, where the opposite is true, and no one can figure out how they squandered so much and ended up with so little. Um, so I, I think it's really fascinating. I remember being, you know, having a very, very sharp first world lesson in in kind of on the ground economics when I got to Argentina and we're experiencing some of those things that you just mentioned. So, you know, parallel exchange rates, uh, a blue market or black market as it's, as it's sometimes referred to, but just explain a little bit more uh, how that plays out in one's day-to-day -day life, because there's really, in many ways, it's, um, you know, it's the ghost of Christmas future for um, profligate first world nations that don't mind their spending um, and and are a little um, you know a, a little lax with uh, with their money printing. So when you talk about capital controls and you talk about that big brecha or that big spread between the unofficial and official rates, what does that mean for the average wage earner, for example, um, who is who is bound or you know bounded into his pesos and and struggles to kind of diversify? Well, the the average person assuming they're receiving money that is declared so something like a third of the workers it by the way including in the public sector which is kind of interesting in the state sector something like a third of workers are actually off the books they're paid cash <laughs> um and and that's to do with that's to do with um the huge taxes that are levied on employment so the the, the sort of social contributions which add about 50 percent to somebody's wage so you know when you're in such a an advanced state of financial decay, and your uh, neighbouring business is breaking all the rules under the under the sun, so that it doesn't make a loss if it complies, as we discussed earlier, then you have no choice but to to go along with that. If you're running a business, you, it's it's either break the rules or go bust. So everyone goes down that track. But okay, so if somebody's paid, but the big businesses don't do that, obviously. But so let's say you're being paid, you're getting pesos. Now, if you've got anything left at the end of the month, what are you going to do with it? Well you're only allowed to convert at the official rates, at the bad rate, into dollars, something like $200 a month, I think it is at the moment, So it, through your bank account. So, you know, so people then take their pesos out if they've got extra. And that's, this is something that's losing a third of its value every year. Prices go up 50%, divide by one and a half, you're left with two thirds buying power. Um, what do you do with that? Well, you, you've got to buy something real. So what are you going to do? People tend to spend a lot more on refurbishing their home than they might otherwise choose to they might buy a pile of bricks and when they've got enough bricks they might build an extension they might uh believe it or not they might even buy a, a car which here would be seen as a as a way to preserve wealth rather than a depreciating asset um because maybe they expect in 
three or four years' time, the peso will devalue and they can sell the thing for dollars and get more pesos than they put in and all this kind of stuff. Um, but it's actually very hard. Or they go to a back street and they say, well, here's my pile of pesos, give me some dollars. But they have to pay that huge 80% premium to get the, to get the dollars, which they then hide somewhere. Um, so it's, it's extremely hard for them. There's very, very little to, choose, to invest in. They can't get money overseas very easily unless you're very wealthy and you know, the, know how to do it. Um, so the average person really struggles, to be honest. And it's, uh, I mean, it might sound a little cynical to say so, but, um, you know, we know, for example, around election time when they have, you know, they run campaigns, such and such para todos, such and such for everything, for, for everyone. And it might be football para todos where they, you know, they'll, they'll have a public television channel broadcasting, you know, the glory days, the patriotic glory days of Argentine football greats. Uh, for free. So this is the kind of the, the circuses of the bread and circuses. And then very literally, they have choripan para todos, or, you know, it's kind of like a sausage in bread where they'll give them out. And this is very literally the bread in the bread and circuses. It does seem to behoove. Um, and again, this is this may sound quite cynical, but it does seem to behoove the state to have as many people dependent on it and its various social programs um, in, in order to continue the state's existence, uh, because, you know, obviously nobody's going to, nobody in their right mind would vote for, um, you know, for a lessening of their own, um, benefits, uh, at, at the behest of the state. And it does seem, and maybe this has been ushered in or at least accelerated, uh, during the past year with, with COVID and with the various STEMI checks in America. And um, we had job keeper and job seeker programs in Australia. I'm sure there's something similar in the UK where the government has stepped in essentially and uh, put money directly into sometimes directly crediting um, individual citizens' bank accounts, meaning that they're, those people are now becoming increasingly dependent on a state which can cut them off at any time. Um, can you know severely augment their flexibility in the workplace, um, and you know can can threaten them with all kinds of um, you know with all manner of things if they don't uh, vote the way that or think the way or read the right things <laughs> um, or express the right opinions. It, 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 do you see the kinds of things like what what we've seen in Argentina sort of um, seeping out into the rest of the world? Oh, definitely. Um, you know, you see it in the style of politics, you know, whether it's, you know, I don't want to get into partisan stuff, but you see when you start seeing presidents of whichever side of the fence um, refusing to take questions at uh, press conferences and, and all that stuff, it, to me, it just looks very much like some of the recent Peronist presidents that we have in, in Argentina. It's that lack of accountability. They don't want to answer questions. And all they do is, is complain that uh, everybody's being mean to them. <laughs> Um, rather than actually, rather than actually dealing with the issues, um, the the whole welfare dependency thing is is pretty awful ultimately because people do get too used to it. Um, I mean, I looked at it in detail a couple of years ago here in Argentina, and something like sixty percent of government spending was welfare, mm. so it's cash disbursements to people for various in various different categories, which doesn't leave a lot once you've paid all the all the wages of all the people in the public sector doesn't leave a lot for things like hospitals and, and schools and all the rest of it. And it looks like, you know, the Western world has to be going that way too, because not just all these, in the UK, they call them furlough payments. I think in the US, you call them stimulus checks, but, um, you know, these are big amounts of money that have been, been given to people. And that, you know, I can, I can see why they did it, but the point is when do you cut it off and say, right, we've got to get back to, back to normal. Um, but you know these are aging populations. Mm -hmm. the, 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 the demographics are only going one. The demographics are only going one way. And if you've got lots of old people, well, lots of old people want paid pensions, mm -hmm. and they want and they want access to decent healthcare at a, at a price they can afford, or that they don't have to pay for additionally on top of the taxes they paid in the past. Um, so either way, that to me says government has to keep uh, increasing the money they spend on old people to stay in power. Uh, it doesn't matter which side of the fence you're on. That's their vote, and, yeah. Um, yeah, that's, you know, if, yeah, exactly. You, you know, the old vote is, is the winning vote. Young people can get on Twitter and moan about somebody saying something mean that they, or they think is mean and try and cancel them. But the bulk of the population is getting older and older. And 
with a small C, conservative. Old people tend to be conservative. They're not, they don't tend to be fire-breathing communists or radicals. Um, there is actually a sort of, I think, an optimistic side to it, which is that, that older people tend to be with a small C, not political, big C, small C. They tend to be quite conservative in their views. They've sort of seen it all. They've, they've heard it all. They're not going to be fire-breathing communists or whatever. And therefore, I suspect that the long-term trajectory uh, of developed countries as the, as the populations age is they, is they actually become less radical left. Now, although we're seeing a resurgence of lots of shouty young people in, in the US and the UK, particularly at the moment, um, the UK at least did dodge the bullet. So, so after the Brexit vote, I don't know if you want to talk about that in a minute, um, but after the Brexit vote in 2016, you know, UK politics is dominated by two big, big parties, the Labour Party, which are traditionally the working class blue collar socialists looking after the working man and the conservatives, which were traditionally the sort of landowning uh, class and the merchant class, if you like. And um, the Labour Party went very, very hard left. I mean, really hard left, harder left than it's probably ever been in its history, um, you know, over the last century. This is under Mr. Corbyn's Yeah, uh, under, under Jeremy Corbyn. And um, it, was, it was sort of the people pushing that. It's rather, rather ironic because the people pushing that were generally rather young, aggressive, hard left people, militants. Um, but they chose as their leader a rather old, you know, sort of white-haired, bearded you know, man who's an old-school sort of guy whose uh, uh, attitudes haven't really changed since the 1970s, probably. Um, but anyway, fortunately, in two elections, he didn't win power because that would have been tremendously damaging to the UK. I mean, really damaging. I mean, the, it would have destroyed large swathes of, of industry. It would have created massive inflation as they do their usual playbook of print money. Um, it would have well, it would have been back to the 1970s stagflation, in my opinion. Um, the pound would have collapsed as everyone lost confidence in, in, in the place and all the rest of it. So luckily it didn't happen. And, uh, well, UK politics is difficult to pick apart at the moment, but the working class have shifted massively to the Conservative Party. I mean, massively. This is not, not a small thing. And also in northern areas, which were traditionally very, very left-wing, you know, and it's because... The, the left-wingers have upset the working class with all their woke nonsense, which the working class of the blue-collar people don't like. Um, you know, they're anti the country, they're anti the military, they're anti, um, you know, they have sort of kooky ideas about, about society. And uh, so I think, you know, that combination of the working class and the ageing society will ultimately prove to be the bulwark that saves these countries from this nutty left radical sort of thinking in societal terms. Yeah, that's a, it's a very interesting uh, point you make. I remember seeing a few years ago, uh, you know, one of these surveys that they're constantly conducting and um, it, you know, there was, there was a creep of the kind of um, let's say 20 to 35 year cohort that were either uh, somewhat favorable or or had very favorable opinions of uh, socialism and or communism and as they got older and as the cohorts broke down you saw a shift towards you know what you were just outlining as kind of small c conservative conservatism right around the time I, I think you could probably pinpoint the inflection point when those people had to start actually paying taxes and that was when they started thinking oh hang on a second i don't like having to pay for all these, all these, um, you know, bloated earmarks, um, you know, all these boondoggles and, um, and, and make work programs. It's all right when other people have to do it, but now that it's, now that I have to do it, I'm not so much on board with it. But the other interesting part was the people who were in that, uh, you know, say 20 to 35 year cohort, although they expressed a, uh, an, an agreement or some favorable, uh, favorable notions toward uh, socialism and communism, they were largely unable to define quite what it was. And it, it wasn't until they kind of, as you said, you know, they'd been around the block a few times and they'd, you know, seen the consequences of actions. Maybe they, they ended up running a business, meeting a payroll, negotiating with employees, something like that, and then had to say, oh, hang on a second. This isn't all that, you know, this isn't all just unicorns and uh, fairy sandwiches. Yeah. Hey, look, I, th I think just people grow up. I mean, you know, spotty youths waving placards outside universities and, and you know, with a Che Guevara t-shirt on and agitating for communism or some hard left thing. Eventually they grow up and they realize that, um, you know, 
basically, well, not all of them. I mean, uh, to be honest, uh, <laughs> there's quite a few hard left people and part of my family back in England, but they, even most of them have mellowed over the, over the decades. But um, I luckily came from a wing that, that, that wasn't quite so infected with that. But, uh, um, you know, ultimately socialism doesn't work. I mean, okay, let, let's put it this way. You know, let's approach it from the other angle. So, you know, roughly 80% of the people in the world live in, in pretty poor countries, live in poverty, and 20% live in, you know, with high standards of living in the developed countries. So that's North America, most of Europe, um, Japan, Australia, New Zealand, <clears throat> and one or two other places. Um, now, the way I look at it is every single one, and I can't think of an exception, every single one of the countries where the incomes are, the average incomes are high and the standard of living is generally high, every single one has basically practiced a capitalist economy for many, many decades, and in some cases, centuries. And I think that is the strongest argument that I can think of for why a capitalist system is far, far superior to a socialist system. And then if you look at the poor side, well, some people would argue that some of them are capitalists, but I would say they're more just corrupt. Um, but most of them actually have suffered long periods of socialism. And I think that's, that's generally the reason why, why they're, they're, they're not wealthy. They haven't had those decades or centuries of capitalism where you slowly, incrementally, every year, with, with ups and downs, but slowly, incrementally over time, with compounding, standards of living get better. And I've seen it in my lifetime. You know, I, I grew up in the 70s and early 80s, and I can see that people in the UK, for all their moaning, live much more materially comfortable lives than they did when I was growing up. They have much more stuff, and they have foreign holidays, and they have nice cars, and they have this and that. Um, whereas my parents' generation, uh, had very little. You know, if you go back, when I listened to them talking about the life in the 50s and 60s, um, you know, it was, it's all manual labor, even when you're sort of washing clothes and stuff. So, you know, right. that's what capitalism does. It raises standards of living over time. And if we lose that, then, you know, it's, it's Argentina time. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's stunning to, uh, you know, to discover the amount of, well, it's stunning to discover the people who are most in favor of, you know, the kind of regimes that are in place in Argentina and Cuba and Venezuela um, and, you know, the, the, the former Soviet Union have rarely traveled to those places or experienced what it's like actually on the ground there. Um, so when you get, for example, the the riots that were on the streets of Havana just recently, they're, you know, they have to explain it away with, oh, they're, you know, they're they're protesting that they don't have vaccines or this, that, or the other. When you'll you'll have actual Cubans saying, oh no, no, Che <laughs> Guevara is no hero of ours. You know, he's he's the man who, you know, who who executed homosexuals and wouldn't let you listen to, you know different types of music and had strict control of the media, all of the, all of the, you know, the very same, um, you know, reading from the very same playbook that, um, that the left's reading from right now. Um, but just to get back to that uh, Brexit near miss for a second, I know that lots of people were talking about, um, you know, it was, it was going to be an apocalyptic, you know, nudge off the cliff that we were we were told that uh, you know that if if the UK left the European Union, um, then you know it was going to it was going to be plunged into the sea. And I remember everybody posting John Donne's fav- famous poem about um, about no man is an island, and if a clod be washed away, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. This, but um, it, that doesn't seem to have come to pass. It seems to have been the crisis that wasn't. Uh, what, what's your read there? Yes, yeah, the crisis that wasn't because it was never going to happen. It was all complete <laughs> lies and scaremongering. Um, you know, people were going to lose. But it was. It was. There was crazy stuff. It was. It was. You know, not just the that you're going to lose your job and you're going to. It's going to cost everyone thousands of pounds a year, um, and all this kind of stuff. Trade was going to implode. We're going to run out of medicines. There'd be no food. You know, they're saying all this stuff. They even said that. Believe it or not, they even said there was going to be an outbreak of super gonorrhea because there would be no medicines to treat it. I mean, it was just—it was just insane, silly stuff. And I believe at one, even at one point in some interview, uh, the prime minister at the time, David Cameron, 
said, uh, no, maybe it wasn't him. Well, somebody said this. I forget who it was. Said it was going to lead to the Third World War. I mean, how does that figure? I mean, it's just, yeah. Wow. People lost the plot. Um, But luckily, uh, you know, the blue-collar workers stepped in and voted to leave the the European Empire. And um, it's all been fine. The, the main the main thing that's happened i mean it was it was tough don't don't, don't let me underestimate don't underestimate the societal division the families split arguing over dinner tables and all the rest of it um that's calming down now that it's finally happened but the main the main things that have happened are on the one hand something that's a bit bad for the eu which is what what's left of it which is that britain is now importing now it's outside the this, this kind of controlled block it's now importing more from outside the eu and less from inside the eu so they've lost a bit of export trade to the uk and uh, the other uh, obvious win is that um the uk went its own way with um getting hold of lots of vaccines for the for the covid pandemic and started immunizing its people far far earlier than most of the big um big european countries so therefore saved lives that way so it's been basically good news um, the other thing that was meant to implode was uh, was the financial sector. You know, the City of London, the equivalent of Wall Street, the biggest financial centre in in Europe, and and pretty much as big as New York, depending on what you look at. Um, you know, they were talking about hundreds of thousands of jobs moving to 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 Frankfurt or to Paris or to Dublin or wherever within the EU, and in the end, only about two percent of city workers have moved. Um, and people that are paid a lot, it's something like, I, I saw a report just a couple of days ago, 95 people. Wow, end of the world stuff. 95 <laughs> people lived over the border. I mean, it, it's just nonsensical, all the scare, scaremongering that went on. And it's fine, and it will be fine, and a few people will sulk for a few more years and all the rest of it, but it'll all be okay. And, you know, I'm, I was always pro-Brexit, and um, because I don't like the EU, I think it's unworkable to have 28 nations as it was that are everywhere from Romania to you know the UK or Ireland They're, you can't you just can't cannot have one set of rules or laws or taxes or ways to to run a society with such a disparate group of people it's just not going to work all the different languages the cultures it's just not going to work it's never going to work and i think the UK is at the vanguard i think they i think they're the first country to leave not the last yeah, that's that's very interesting, and and uh, you know, as as someone who is sitting in Greece right now, um, and I know you know this very well too from from your your various travels throughout the years that the the um, <laughs> you know the attitude towards a work life balance here in Greece is very very different from the attitudes to a work life balance in say um, northern Germany. Or, um, you know, the difference between a Spaniard's work ethic or, um, you know, appetite for risk or wanting to put capital to, uh, to work is very different. Uh, just culturally, um, socially, economically, politically, intellectually, philosophically, spiritually, whatever, whatever way you want to, you want to kind of cut it. Um, the fact is that, you know, these are vastly, vastly different cultures. And um, yeah, I agree that it was, it's, it was always kind of unworkable. Of course, the, the great irony is, is that, um, is that the, pre- the precursor to the European Union, as I understand it, was um, a, a kind of post-World War II arrangement that was, that was designed more or less to help stitch, um, to stitch the European nations together uh, in order to avoid um, exactly what we're seeing now, which is more division, <laughs> more, uh, you know, more infighting and, and more separatism, which it, it looks like, um, uh, if you're right, then, and Britain is the first, but not the last to leave, uh, we might see some, some others break off in, in the near future too. Yeah. I mean, look, it, it, it started, if, if memory serves, it started as a coal trading group after the second world war, um, with about five countries in it. And expanded more to a, a trade block, and Britain had a equally contentious uh, referendum in the seventies on whether to join what at the time was called the, um, I think it was called the European Economic Community (EEC). But the big con was that over time it changed from being a trade block, so an idea of free trade, to being a protectionist block, 
but also uh, to becoming a political union. And that's a big change. Giving up sovereignty is very, very different to merely wanting to trade with your neighbours and have friendly relations. Right. And that's the, bit, that's the big con that was pulled uh, on all the people across Europe. And the British finally had their chance to say enough is enough. And fortunately, just enough of them turned out to vote to regain their sovereignty. So, you know, I think that's a good thing. And, and the, UK has, the, the UK hasn't tipped into the ocean yet, and uh, apocalypse has been averted, goodness knows how. But <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I, look, it'll, it'll all be fine. <laughs> right. Keep carry on. Yeah, I'm much more worried about, about um, you know, the, the, the basic financial condition of all these developed countries, which are with governments that are spending too much money and, and governments, individuals and companies who are piling on such massive amounts of debt that mm-hmm. this cannot be sustainable and printing money uh, like crazy too, which is, is yeah, it, it has to end in financial crisis again at some point. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. And that's most likely going to be, you know, some inflationary crisis or a balance of payments crisis or a currency devaluation or, you know, going to happen in these countries at some point right so th- that's interesting it brings up the it brings up my next point here which is you and i are are pretty familiar with the concept of of crisis vacationing and um and i'm doing a little bit of that at the moment here um which is that you you take your tourist dollars and your time and your effort uh and you go to a place that's uh, perhaps a bit down on its luck um with the twin at least to upsides of uh, avoiding the queues if you don't like crowded beaches and uh, restaurants, but also, and I think vastly more importantly, um, bringing some much needed business back to places that have, you know, maybe maybe suffered um, in the in the recent past. And in, in the case of Greece here, obviously they rely hugely on tourism to keep their uh, their economy afloat, and you know, obviously, with COVID last year, they had they suffered a massive setback there. So, I will uh, just take this opportunity to tell listeners: if you've been planning a holiday, come to Greece. Everything is open, everything is wonderful. The Greek people are as warm and welcoming uh, as ever, and you'll be you'll be very very rewarded for um, for your efforts uh, to come on over. So. Given that uh, kind of concept of crisis vacationing, I know you've had um, we've had many discussions about this in the past. But let's apply that to uh, your bailiwick, which is uh, investments. Where do you send? You know, as you look out over the world right now, and you see this this huge flood of of liquidity under the under the kind of guise of emergency measures and temporary measures, which are of course never temporary. Um, where do you see opportunities to park some capital? Um, at this point in time? Well, you know, I'd say um, the concept of crisis vacationing with your capital um, is essentially looking at these places that have had a bit of a meltdown for some reason, and or sectors or businesses, and seeing, seeing whether there's an opportunity to buy them at a, a really knockdown sort of level. And then basically, as, as the panic subsides, you don't even need things to get brilliant. You just need the panic to subside and things to get a bit less bad you can make extremely large profits in short periods of time. Now, I wouldn't say that that's the core of what I do. What I do generally is try and find good companies with growing profits and decent dividends and and particularly trading at attractive prices and sit on them for a few years. But I think there's a piece in everyone's, you know, the place in everyone's portfolio for for shorter-term speculations when opportunities arise. I'll give you a a couple of examples. So last year, when COVID hit, the price of silver crashed to uh, its a record discount to gold. So the gold to silver ratio went to something like 125 for very briefly for one day. And I thought, well, that's great. Silver's never been cheaper. I'll buy some silver. And I sat on it for, I don't know, I think it was six or seven months and it, it rocketed by about 70%. So that's the kind of, that's a classic example of a crisis vacation with capital. Um, so right now, well, where are we right now? Um, I think it's not exactly in a crisis other than the, the general global pandemic. I think the UK has quite a bit of value buried in it um, still. And the reason for that is, is that there was that lack of confidence after the Brexit vote in 2016, and then COVID hit as well. And just a lot of companies, I think, are trading at pretty attractive levels. So it's, a, it's quite an interesting hunting ground, and I'm certainly finding 
I've got more. I've personally got more invested in the UK now than I have done for a decade, at least. Um, wow, that's a, that's interesting. That's a. Uh, I mean, the the vote with your money and with your feet are. Uh, I think we would agree some of the most important votes that you would make. So obviously, you have um, you have a, a a bullish or let's call it an optimistic outlook for the UK, and I I, I think that kind of gels with what you're doing with um with your research service uk independent wealth do you want to sort of talk about that a little bit or what what the kind of framework and goal set is there yeah well we we started that uh in december last year and um i i had the the great fortune um to be invited to to work on it because uh what i didn't know when i started discussions about it was that um my work colleague would be none other than Nigel Farage, sometimes known as Mr. Brexit, um, who, you know, obviously has a bit of a profile in the, in the US too. Um, and it, what, what a lot of people don't know about him is his former life. He was an industrial metals trader in the city of London. And his dad was a stockbroker and his grand, grandfather was a stockbroker. So, you know, he actually has a lot of financial background. And um, so I work with him. He, uh, he's always got interesting ideas and we, we talk regularly. And, um, and then we look for, you know, we're helping people who maybe don't have uh, an awful lot of financial experience, guiding them through the stock markets and helping them take back control of their money, as we say, in the same way that Britain took back control from the EU and um, explaining to them, you know, how they can profit in the, in the markets and not be taken advantage of by, uh, by people out there. And so there's, there is, you know, it's very much a UK focus at the moment, but um, that also happens to be a pretty good hunting ground at the moment, so, so that works. No, that's a ha- that's a happy coincidence, and I and I would say too that it's um, and you and I talk about this a little bit um, in in private over our our uh, unhurried lunches is that uh, you know there seems to be along with a flood of uh, devaluing fiat currency um, a, a wash across the globe. There does seem to be. A flood of fear and pessimism, negativity, this kind of self-loathing that we see going on, um, particularly in the West, um, where people are, you know, really hating on the the very values that made countries like uh, the UK, like the US, like Australia, um, you know, stand out and stand above in the first place. Those kind of traditional values, they're now being. Um, you know, they're being attacked and they're being torn down and we're seeing this, um, you know, this just a constant barrage of, of fear and negativity. So it it must be just, I mean, from a personal standpoint of your own and and just as, as far as, um, as your occupation is concerned, it's nice to wake up in the morning and uh, look out on the horizon and see, uh, you know, a silver lining to every cloud that you see on the news. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and look, um, whatever whatever's going on in the world, uh, speaking as an investor now, there's always an opportunity somewhere. It's just a question of, of whether you can find it and have the confidence to actually back it. Um, I mean, I'll give you another example. I, I, I very, very rarely would invest in a place like uh, Argentina. Um, I don't think it's a good destination for capital. But there's a company here that uh, that's active in agriculture, and it was trading at a sort of multi-decade low earlier in the year. So I thought I'd have a go at it, and um, it owns you know vast amounts of land, and it owns land in Brazil too, and all the rest of it. And again, it's one of those things. You know, it's just a it's a stock that's not going to go bust. It just owns land. And again, it was just one of those things you nip in and nip out, and uh, that's what I did. And when it when it got to a point where I thought it was no longer cheap, I jumped out. Um, Chile was something I looked at earlier in the year. You know, copper prices have been rocketing, and Chile is the by far the biggest uh, copper producer in the world. And um, the currency moves along with the copper price a lot. And they've had a lot of political problems in prior years. Then they had the COVID pandemic. And again, the market was looking dirt cheap. So I thought, well, I'll jump in there and just have a go at that for a bit. But then it changed. So you also have to keep an eye on it because the politics looks like it's swinging very hard left. Could go very hard left in an election later this year. So then I jumped mm. out <laughs> before yeah. it was too late. And I, and I took, I, when, once I realized that, I, I, you know, I took a small profit rather than uh, carrying on with that risk. But it's an example. You, know, you just look for these little opportunities. 
Um, Peru is a place, again, you know, lot, a lot of people who are into copper mining at the moment, they're in copper mining stocks, and they've done very well. But a lot of them have big operations in Peru. Well, Peru, which is next door to Chile, and I think it's the second biggest producer of copper in the world, Peru just elected a hard left president who's a school teacher with no prior um, political experience. Well, good luck mm. investing in that country because anything could happen. And they could be confiscating mines. They could be taxing them to death. Who knows? So, you know, you've got to be really selective with the stuff, but that doesn't mean there aren't opportunities. Well, it's certainly, uh, it's certainly something to keep you on your toes. And, uh, and uh, speaking of which, mate, I, I've, I'm cognizant of the, of the fact that I've taken up a good amount of your Friday morning time. So thank you very much for, for being generous with that, that hour or so. But um, what's next for Robert Marstrand um, in the coming year? If you've, are you allowed to travel out of the country? Are you, uh, have you got some trips on, on the horizon or what's coming up? Uh, well, I'm I'm currently waiting for my second state-provided vaccine, which could be any day. And then once that happens, I'm hoping to get out of the country because um, I'm missing my parents back in the UK. But oh, other indeed. than that, other than that, carried on looking for opportunities in the markets around the world, of which there are always some. Excellent, Rob. Mate, um, we'll be back down in Argentina in uh, in a couple of weeks, and I'm looking forward to uh, to enjoying one of those unhurried lunches with you. Maybe the maybe the final thing we can say um, is just with regards to prices down there. I know you headed out to one of our favourite restaurants recently, Don Julio's, which happens to be, uh, I think it was rated either number one or number two, I think it was the highest rated uh, restaurant on the South American continent before the pandemic struck. And it's, uh, it's, it's a favorite of ours, but uh, just to whet the appetite of our listeners, <laughs> give them a, give them the rundown of, of the menu and, uh, and the attendant price for a lunch for two. Yeah. Well, you're making me hungry because it's nearly lunchtime here. As we're recording <laughs> this. But, um, um, so, uh, so we had a starter, which was, um, you know, just some small uh, empanadas, a little pastries with meat in them, and some provolone, which is um, grilled cheese. Then we had big steaks and uh, some vegetables, and we had desserts, and we had coffee, and we had water in bottles, and we had a bottle of wine each, and a, a I would say, an extremely good uh, Malbec, by the way. Um, and we had dessert wine glasses. And the entire thing came to the equivalent of about $50 each. And we were really pushing it, really trying to, to spend money. And, um, you know, I, I, think, I think 50 bucks for a, a meal that good, and, and, and the meat is sensational in that place, it's the beef. Um, you know, that gives you an idea. All right, fantastic. Well, yeah, it's, uh, it's getting on towards dinner time here too. So I'm going to have to, uh, on that note, nip out of here and uh, maybe see if I can hunt down a steak somewhere on the island of Crete. Mate, uh, thanks so much again, Rob. Uh, finally, where can people find your work online? It's UK Independent Wealth, and I will send you the links, which I'm sure you can share with your subscribers. Yep, we'll put those underneath. Okay, mate, look forward to uh, catching up in person soon. Thanks again. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Bonner Private Research Podcast. You can find more conversations like this in the members-only section of our website at bonnerprivateresearch.com. If you would like to contact us, please address compliments and complaints alike to podcast at bonnerprivateresearch.com. We look forward to hearing from you either way. Until next week.